Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm here with someone who needs a little introduction in the acquisition community, Ms. Soraya Correa. She is the Chief Procurement Officer for the Department of Homeland Security, and I'm also happy to say that she is serving as an advisory board member for George Mason Center for Government Contracting. Ms. Correa, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So I wanted to start off with uh, small business. And one of the topics that we often hear about is how small businesses kind of get stuck in these programs, and it's difficult for them to graduate to the mid-tier. And then you also hear from the mid-tiers that they want some kind of protection potentially, just like the small businesses do, so that they can more adequately compete with the large contractors. How do you think about this problem of small business graduation from small to mid and mid to big? So... It's a real perplexing problem, and I certainly understand the challenge that small businesses face. But we in the procurement community and the acquisition community have to comply with the laws and regulations that are put before us. And at present, there really isn't a definition of mid-tier. Once you graduate from a small business program, you fall into that realm of large. I don't dispute that there are different variations of large. And in fact, the Government Accountability Office recently even issued a report on this challenge that, quote, mid-tier companies face. But the reality is there is no definition of mid-tier. So it's very hard to try to solve that problem. It's not like we can come up with set-aside programs and things like that. What I think happens often is sometimes small businesses grow too quickly and that's where it starts to become a real challenge for them or sometimes they really were involved in programs where they didn't really compete a lot and so they're a little uncomfortable competing I'm of the notion that small businesses as they graduate if they're real clever and sharp they can usually compete with the uh, larger companies because here's the deal A large company is really like a bunch of small businesses put together. They usually consist of divisions and how they react and respond to things is very similar to a small business. It's just that they have the flexibility to move people around in the organization a little bit more readily. But small businesses also have their, or excuse me, mid-tier companies have their advantages, especially if they pool their resources, maybe team with other mid-tiers to compete for these larger acquisitions. So I don't have an answer. I don't have a solution. If I were queen for a day, I might define a mid-tier program, but that's a hard definition because what is mid-tier? Is it a little bit larger than small? A lot larger than small? How large is enough for a mid-tier? How small is enough for a mid-tier? If that makes sense, the way I'm asking that question. In other words, One of the thoughts is to maybe make it some kind of multiplier from the national, uh, excuse me, the NAICS codes that they apply to companies. There's no real good answer. In fact, I would say, because I know that there are a lot of organizations out there uh, that come and talk to the Small Business Administration and other agencies about this challenge of the mid-tiers, I would say if it were an easy problem to solve, you'd already see the solution on the table. But there are a lot of people thinking about this. There are a lot of ideas around how we might be able to do this, but I don't know that there's a real solution. And it's hard for me to give advice because all I can tell mid-tiers is, you got to look at the particular solicitation, look at what it's asking for, and ask yourself, do I really think I can provide it? How can I provide it? And go ahead and respond. Don't be afraid of competing with the really big companies. Sometimes you might have a better solution, better flexibility, better capability than you think you have. Yeah, one of the things that I've been hearing about with respect to small businesses is category management from the General Services Administration, where they have these government-wide contracts for best-in-class for particular categories. And some people have been complaining that that kind of biases against small business. Is there an inverse relationship, or do you think that's kind of overblown, that argument? So I think the argument is a little bit overblown. There is some limitation there. So it's kind of hard for me to answer that question because I don't want to be critical of my uh, counterparts in government. I think best-in-class solutions are designed really to 
aggregate what we call the common spend, like if you're buying workstations, if you're buying software licenses, that kind of stuff, so that Number one, we get better pricing, hopefully better solutions in those areas. Uh, but then number three, we free up our resources to focus on those things that are truly unique, that truly need to be bought in a more specialized manner. You should have specific contracts because it's unique to your agency mission. So that's really the goal. It's not to slight any one company or another. And I think that when we started with this process, Perhaps some of the best-in-class contracts that were written didn't really focus on small businesses. I think you're seeing a greater emphasis and focus on small companies now, where some of these best-in-class contracts are being written to have tracks for the small businesses. Let me talk a little bit about what we've done at the Department of Homeland Security. First of all, we've had a strategic sourcing program since roughly 2004. When we stood up this department in 2003, we immediately recognized the need for strategic sourcing. In other words, coming together so that we could aggregate our buying power, not just to achieve lower prices and even better solutions, but really to balance that workload because we really didn't have enough people to do all the buying that was needed across all the components. So we stood up a strategic sourcing program so that we could leverage our resources, get those solutions, and make sure that we were you know, sharing in the common spend. So we were kind of doing category management before it became fashionable to say category management in government. That said, one of the things that we've always done, because we have a really good small business program, we have always included capabilities for small businesses to play. So we've always created tracks for small businesses. And we're seeing that being done in the best-in-class contracts. So Agencies like ourselves, when we consider using best-in-class procurements, we look at that. We look at what's going to be the impact to small business. Is the contract that we're adopting going to be friendly to small business? Does it have on-ramps and off-ramps so that you know companies can come on and off the contract? Uh, does it have tracks for small businesses? Does it give us the ability to find small businesses? And that's how we make our decision about adopting best-in-class. I do think it's a little bit of a challenge, of course, because when you're reducing the number of contracts out there, and it potentially you are, then there's you know more competition, if you will. But I don't think it eliminates or minimizes the importance or even the need or capability for small businesses to participate. I just think um, folks have to be conscious about what they're bidding on. So another aspect of small businesses and non-traditionals in general is the uh, acquisition and contracting processes outside the federal acquisition regulations, sometimes called other transactions authorities. In the Department of Defense, we've seen OTAs kind of grow pretty consistently, and there's a pretty big buildup of a bunch of consortiums bringing in non-traditional vendors to compete on these contracts with commercial-type practices. Can you talk a little bit about how the Department of Homeland Security is using uh, OTAs? Sure. So we have OTA authority here at the department, and we use it primarily in our research and development area, and we continue to flex in that respect, staying within the confines of the regulations because we have to work within the boundaries of the authority we are given. We actually stood up what we call the Silicon Valley Innovation Program, and the only thing Silicon Valley about it is the name, okay, because we actually, you know, work with companies across the country and even some outside of the country. And the whole goal of that was to invite the non-traditionals, to make sure that non-traditionals had a place to come with their ideas. And it's not just non-traditionals, but it's really those true companies or those organizations or individuals that have an idea that could be applied, whether it's a technology or a technology that's being that's already in existence in the private sector that could be brought in to solve one of our challenges. Uh, so we stood up this program, the Silicon Valley Innovation Program, to invite those ideas and invite folks to come in and to simplify the procurement process. The beauty of OTAs is that it does really simplify the acquisition process. You can award an OTA very quickly because you're basically starting with a blank sheet of paper and negotiating your terms and conditions. And you're buying more the way the commercial sector buys. And we designed our Silicon Valley Innovation Program to really act like a venture capitalist, right? That we ask a set of questions about the concept, the idea, how you're going to 
build that solution if it's already built how you would look to implement it and then we review that through a team of peer experts you know subject matter experts that know the information or the technology and then we select proposals that we fund it simplifies the process and I'm like really oversimplifying it um, but it really simplifies the process and it lets us get to a contract award in as little as 10 days after we've made a decision some have taken up to 40 45 days but that's still a lot faster than your traditional far based contracting and what that does is ensure that we are getting the funds to these companies these organizations quickly because that's something that the non-traditionals have in common they're not going to be able to comply with all these federal acquisition regulations about cost accounting systems and certifications and those kinds of things they really operate in a much faster manner and so that's what they're looking for so to invite non-traditionals in you have to create a simpler faster process and OTAs give us that flexibility but again we have to be careful that we don't overuse those OTAs because we could get our agencies in trouble the rules are there really to protect both the government and industry right I, I often hear that you know the federal acquisition regulation actually gives contracting officers plenty of room to kind of innovate within the contracting space and that seems to require them to have knowledge not just of the FAR in every FAR regulation, but then they also have to know everything that's applicable in statutes and law, in executive orders, and a host of other regulations. And it seems that it's hard for a contracting officer just to keep up, you know, with what's going on in the FAR, and then there's all these other things, and they might not know what applicable rules are out there that could affect them, and that might turn them a little bit risk-averse. How do you think about this complex of, of rules and regulations and then the risk aversion or risk-takingness of the contract officers. Sure. So first of all, I, I came from the world of contracting. I, I, I literally grew up in this field. So so I was one of those contracting officers that was out there dealing with the daunting maze of regulations, and you describe it very well. But here's what I will also tell you. In the government, we have subject matter experts, people who really understand and know the regulations, the statutes, and we lean on each other. So we have attorneys who help us out. We have policy specialists to help us interpret and to make sure that we keep our contracting officers out of trouble because no one person's going to know it all. But here's what I've learned throughout the years. The FAR is a fairly flexible document. I mean, yeah, there are rules and regulations and there are what I call the four corners of the FAR that you don't want to exceed those bounds. But within those bounds, there are flexibilities. There are a lot of provisions in there that allow us to be somewhat creative. What's really made us risk averse is the challenges that we face, you know, whether it's the protests or the continuingly increasing level of oversight that we get. And when I talk about oversight, I'm talking about, you know, not just the IGs and the GAOs, but even the general public, you know, some of the questions that we get, some of the scrutiny that we get when there is litigation. But I think protests probably scare people the most. Me, I'm not scared of protests. I believe that, you know, the protest process is there for a reason. And if we do things right, we should be able to confront that challenge. And if we make mistakes, then we should raise our hands and say we made a mistake and let's go take the corrective action. Because at the end of the day, the goal is to achieve the objectives of the agency. We're buying to fulfill mission objectives. So we need to get the buy right. And we need to get the products or services delivered. And the other objective is to make sure that we are treating that community that serves us, the industry community that serves us, that we're treating them in a fair and reasonable manner, making sure that if we say we're going to compete, then we compete. If we say we're going to do best value, we do best value. So I am not as concerned about the flexibilities in the FAR. What I worry about a lot is the risk aversion, because in an agency like ours, Department of Homeland Security or the Department of Defense, these mission-critical agencies can't be risk averse. Uh, you know, I, as I always like to say, those who would do us harm do not have a FAR, they don't have a Congress, they don't have a GAO, and they don't have an IG. So they are moving pretty quickly, and as soon as we come up with a solution, they come up with a way to overcome that solution. So we have to be able to flex. And so what I did here to address this notion of risk aversion is I stood up my Procurement Innovation Lab. Um, and the idea behind the Procurement Innovation Lab is to invite our contracting teams 
to bring us ideas on how we can be more flexible, a little bit more nimble and quick about getting through our procurements while simultaneously improving the outcome. Because at the end of the day, this is about mission success. It is about delivering for our customers. So the Procurement Innovation Lab is my approach of saying we can be innovative in procurement. We can do things a little bit different and not be afraid to perhaps do things a little bit more using oral proposals, perhaps uh, multiple down selects to simplify the process, perhaps doing our debriefings to vendors a little bit differently, engaging with industry a little bit differently so that we can get through the procurement process a little bit faster and achieve better outcomes. I'm glad you moved to the Procurement Innovation Lab. I like I the way I threw that, that curveball. Yeah, yeah, no, that was exactly where I wanted to go. Uh, also called the pill. So I would like to do just a little bit of a deep dive on the pill and give, sure. give our listeners a more visceral feeling for what's going on there. So can you just describe, like, what is the pill? Is it like an office with a dedicated staff and funding? Is it at headquarters, at each of the components? You know, what's what's kind of the organizational it's design? It's all of those things. Okay. Now. So the Procurement Innovation Lab. So when I came into my position back in January 2015, I came with a goal to really change our cultural thinking because I was one of those contracting officers that was willing to try new things, do things a little bit differently, to really look at what flexibilities I might be able to adopt from the Federal Acquisition Regulation. And I think the single biggest thing that deters folks from perhaps being a little bit more innovative and taking a few more risks is not knowing whether they're going to be supported, especially if they're going to be supported when they make a mistake or when they fail. A lot of people don't like that word fail in the federal government. I use it because to be successful, sometimes you're going to fail. You're going to have to make some mistakes and learn from them. So the purpose of the Procurement Innovation Lab, and I stood it up as really a consultancy, not to do the procurement, but to invite folks in to bring us their ideas, what, what we think we want to do differently in a particular solicitation, whether it's how we're going to solicit proposals, how we're going to evaluate them, or a combination of those things, or even how we're going to engage with industry before we even put out the solicitation. But the idea is bring us your idea, and we will look at your idea working with you and your team, the contracting officer, the legal advisor, the program official, and whoever else needs to be involved in that, to have a conversation about your strategy, what you're trying to do, so that we can make sure we avoid any pitfalls, if you will, any places where perhaps you're doing something that isn't authorized or allowed in the FAR, but more importantly, to make sure you've thought it through. And the idea is then you go forth and do your procurement and we'll consult with you on a biweekly basis to make sure you're making good progress or to help you course correct if you need to course correct. And we let you go off and do that procurement. And then you bring us back the results, right? If you're successful, we usually ask the team to engage in teaching others what they did through a webinar. We'll host a webinar and let that team actually do the teaching. If for some reason you fail, then we are going to look at why did you fail? What happened? Grab those lessons learned, and I take responsibility for that failure. Me, the Chief Procurement Officer of the Department of Homeland Security. Because if I want people to be innovative, if I want people to try new things, then they got to know that I'm going to stand with them and I'm going to support them. And that's really the most important tenet of the pill, is that support that they're going to get from me as a senior leader in the organization. The way the pill works, we like to call it testing and sharing. Testing is experimenting. You're trying something new. We're going to, like I said, we'll consult with you and, and talk to you on a biweekly basis and see how you're doing. And then sharing. Once you've completed successful or not successful, we're going to go out and teach people what we learned so that we can perfect that process. And that's the idea behind the pill. And, and the Procurement Innovation Lab, I always like to tell people, um, you know, I like catchy acronyms. If procurement's giving you a headache, take a pill. <laughs> <laughs> So as I understand it, there's kind of like an acquisition innovation advocate in each one of your components, right? And then they identify the procurement that's kind of right for the pill, and then they can, they consult. Is that kind of? Yeah. So acquisition innovation advocates is a concept uh, that actually the Office of Federal Procurement Policy came up with, but we all are a part of. What we did here at the department is we identified, we asked uh, each of the components to identify acquisition innovation advocates to help guide 
their innovation teams if they want to bring a project to the pill. But you do not have to go through an acquisition innovation advocate to bring us a project. It can be brought to us by any contracting officer across the department who's working on a procurement that really wants to confer with us on an idea that they have on how do they streamline either their engagement with industry or the procurement itself or how they're going to evaluate it. So acquisition innovation advocates do not have to endorse or bring us the project. Anyone can bring us the project. And then it sounds like they get a, a good deal of top cover from you. And it seems yes. like that top cover, especially for those at the lower level, that means a lot. Like if you have like oh, sure. something written, like an email or whatever from you, Sir Correa, yeah. that can that can go a long way to giving well, them that confidence. And, and what I've tried to do is bring our heads of contracting. The way we're divided here at the department is I have the procurement line of business as the chief procurement officer. And then there are 10 heads of contracting who actually do the day-to-day -day operational contracting. They're a part of this team and they know that I support this and they support having these innovation teams, if you will, these teams out there doing innovations. And so the acquisition innovation advocates really are part of the head of contracting staff. So they're there to support their teams as well. And the goal is really how do we make procurement better? I really get tired of hearing people telling me, oh, the procurement process is long and drawn out and it's overly complicated and difficult. It's overly complicated and difficult because we make it that way. And amazingly, sometimes who really makes it sometimes a little overly complicated are the very people that are complaining about the fact that it's long and drawn out. In other words, it's not the contracting officer. Sometimes it's the program. Sometimes it's even the vendor. Um, but my goal is really to improve mission outcomes, to make sure that as we're going out and accomplishing our acquisitions, that we're bringing in solutions and vendors, because sometimes you're just buying services, that instill a greater degree of confidence that we're going to be successful. So one of the things that we do with the pill is we go back and continually check to see how performance is going. Because it's not just about streamlining the process, but it's about making sure we got good outcomes. And I'm very pleased to report that as we're going back and looking at projects that we started two, three years ago, we're finding that people are more satisfied with the solutions, that they got better delivery of product and service, that they got better products and services. And that ultimately is really the goal here. Yeah, definitely. I think if people like you are able to put out some studies that show that and show these are some good programs and look at how they benefited, that will go a long way towards getting good faith from those in OMB or in Congress itself to continue allowing you. These past five years seem to have been quite a bit different than many of the types of acquisition reform, probably back towards 1970 yeah. since David Packard was kind of the most interesting time, it seems like. So I took a stab at acquisition reform from a different way, right? Usually most acquisition reform initiatives focus on changing the regulations or, you know, trying to fix laws and that kind of stuff. And I said, I still think we can be innovative within the confines of what we have to work with. So I haven't made a single FAR change. We haven't gone for a FAR change. We focused on let's use the FAR as it's written because the FAR isn't a cookbook. It's really a compilation of the rules and regulations governing procurement to make sure that we do things right and in a fair and equitable manner and that we treat industry properly as well as making sure we're complying with laws and regulations that govern the acquisition field and that companies comply with those. So I'm not trying to change the rules. I'm trying to change the way we think about the rules. I'm trying to make sure that people are saying, look, if it doesn't say I can't do it and it's not breaking any law, then maybe we can try it. I'm also trying to say maybe everything doesn't have to be reduced to three to 500 pages of proposal language, right? Maybe we can engage in a discussion with industry. Maybe we bring our evaluators in a room along with our lawyer and our contracting officer, and we have a discussion with vendors. We let them demonstrate their approach, their process, introduce us to the people that are going to work on the project, let them tell us how they're going to do it, as opposed to having a written document that may or may not have even been written by that team. So my goal is to say, culturally, let's change how we think about procurement. And I'm very pleased with the response that we've gotten, not only from the Office of Federal Procurement Policy at the Office of Management and Budget, but also other agencies. Other agencies are, are looking at what we're doing in the pill, and they're participating, because we go out and we do what we call pill boot camps, a one-day training on some of our procurement innovation lab techniques and how we go about innovating. And then now we're going to start pill coaching clinics, hopefully, in the not-too-distant future, to teach 
people how to be pill coaches, right? How to encourage people to be innovative. Because our goal here is really to change the thinking, is to say we can take some risks, we can try some new things. And here's another thing. Some of our processes where we've been innovative on simplifying uh, how we evaluate proposals, engaging in moral discussions, have been tested in the courts. They have been tested through protest, and we've been successful. And that's a very important thing to show that we can change the way we do things and we can win the argument. And how do we share that information? Well, we publish a pill yearbook. We call it the pill yearbook, and there we'll highlight projects that we've worked on, what the outcomes were, and we'll even talk about projects that maybe weren't as successful as we would have liked because again it's all about learning and it's all about sharing that information across our department the Department of Homeland Security but across even the federal government yeah one thing I've heard uh, from the GAO is that I think it's like something less than 10% of the protests are actually sustained or much lower than that even so it seems like you know the protests a lot of people get wrapped up in it and it does take a lot of time and effort but it seems like you know when you do good practices that shouldn't come back to bite you. Exactly. Exactly. You shouldn't come back to bite you. And here's the thing. If you make a mistake in the process, own up to it, right? Here, what we try to do is if we get a protest, we immediately look to see what are the allegations and are they valid? Did we do something wrong? If we did something wrong, we can take corrective action. And at GAO, those stats are good, but I don't have the numbers in front of me, but we also can get protested at the Court of Claims, which is a very different process. And whether it's at the GAO or the Court of Claims, Protests require a great deal of work on the part of the agency as well as the vendor filing the protests. They can be a little bit painful because they can be long and drawn out, and ultimately they delay your procurement. So you do want to avoid the protest if you can, and how you avoid that protest is hopefully good planning, good engagement with industry, and then good debriefings at the end. But having a really good process and getting through that process in an efficient manner is extremely important. You've mentioned as part of the pill and, and some of the things you're doing with the contracting is multiple down selects and oral proposals. And when I think of this from the Department of Defense side that I usually am on, I think of, you know, the commercial solutions openings and then like the Air Force has been very big on these pitch days where they have people come in. Are you guys doing something like a pitch day? Yeah. or how? So you guys are doing. Yeah, we do a lot of these things, but this is even just, you know, what we're doing in the pill is focusing even on the traditional procurement, right? We're just trying to buy, I don't know, IT services to support our CIO in cybersecurity, as an example. What we're saying is you don't need some unique mechanism over here. Even within a traditional procurement, you don't have to do things on paper. Everything doesn't have to be on paper. I'll give you a couple of examples of some of our early projects. Uh, we were buying software test and evaluation services. So instead of having them write out their you know, beautiful procedure and, you know, 200 words or, excuse me, 200 pages of, of, of a binder that somebody reads. Instead, we said, here's an idea. We're going to build some code. We're going to put some errors in that code. And we're going to invite you in, Mr. Vendor. And we're going to give you this code and we're going to let you go off and test this code using your procedure. Then you're going to come back in and we got a series of questions that you're going to answer for us. And you're going to tell us how you found the errors and what the errors were that you found. And that's what we're going to evaluate. That's all whole different approach. That's the show me, don't tell me. That talks to us about can you really execute? Can you really do what you said you would do? Does your process work the way you believe? And do your people understand that process? The team that you bring, because the team that you're going to bring in is now your technical experts, not corporate officials that tell me how great and wonderful you are. And nothing wrong with that, by the way. But these are the people that do the work. And I get to see that. And my evaluators get to see that and ask questions about it. And that's what's going to give us confidence. There is no 100% solution out there and everybody can't get it perfect. What we want to understand is how you do it, how well you do it, how well you understand your own process. And I think we get a lot more out of seeing it, touching it, feeling it, if you will, than you do out of reading about it. I always liken it to buying a car, by the way. You test drive a car, right? You don't just go, wow, I read about this great car and I'm just going to fork over, you know, $70,000, $100,000 to buy this beautiful car. You're going to want to test drive it and see if that's the right car for you. 
Yeah, I kind of like the way that you guys are approaching that. Yeah, I looked up online. I couldn't find anything like pitch day DHS oriented. But then when I think back to kind of how the Department of Defense does it, it seems like when they do these pitch days, they're kind of like special and outside. And then it's like, oh, well, those guys over there. So the way you're kind of talking about it is you're bringing that same mechanism, but you're allowing the program offices to kind of own it themselves. And it's not this big special thing. It's part of the culture. It's now. part of the culture. It's part of doing day-to-day acquisitions. And we do have pitch days for when we're trying to learn about new technologies or uh, innovative approaches to doing things. But we're saving that for that. We're saying you can be innovative in the procurement process, in how you evaluate proposals, uh, how you write your selection procedures. And here's the deal. This benefits industry, and I'm going to tell you how it benefits industry. It costs industry money to bid on a government contract. One of the things that we do, and I'll talk about it a little bit later, is the reverse industry days. And we've learned a lot about how industry does things when they're responding to a government solicitation. So our goal is let's get industry through this process as quickly as possible so that we can get on to the business of doing the real work. And the quicker and the more efficient I run that process, the quicker and more efficiently industry gets their people back. Because if you're not going to win, you want to move on to the next available uh, opportunity. And if you win, you want to get to work. Your folks, you know, your engineers and your uh, technologists do not get excited about writing proposals. They get excited (laughs) about delivering products or service. Yeah, definitely. It seems that we have a little bit of a chicken or the egg problem where like these companies come in and like maybe some of these bid and proposal things are allowable, but that assumes that you already have an existing contract that you can expense it to. And then you also, it might drive up some of your overhead rates, which makes you less competitive if you're on the commercial side as well. So I very much hear you and I'm glad to hear that, you know, trying to streamline and it seems more commercial, right? You bring someone in front of you. It's very shark tanky, right? Yeah, it's a little, a little more shark tanky. Exactly. That's a good way to describe it. But also, here's the thing. Even for large businesses, it's a consternation. But they have more resources that they can dedicate to bid and proposal. For a smaller company, that's hard. And our processes are not simple, even just the bidding process and how you register and all that stuff. We keep trying to simplify it and make it better, but it can be very costly and very time consuming. So the more that we can simplify the process and make it a little bit more transparent and easier to follow, then the more companies can compete. And competition is good. Competition is not just about price, it's also about good solutions, good resources. Right, definitely. There would be no point to running the competition if you knew who would win ahead of time, right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And if they know they're going to win, they're probably not going to lower their prices that much. That's just kidding. <laughs> right. um, so one of the things about the pill I wanted to ask you about is it seems like it might be focused kind of on the contracting piece, but does it address how new programs come about, requirements, and then the funding process? How, do, how does that all come together into a complete program? So the pill in and of itself is focused on the contracting side because what I was looking at was changing the cultural thinking of my procurement teams out there telling my contracting officers it's permissible to be innovative, it's permissible to try some new approaches and things. So it is very focused, but it lends itself to supporting that larger scale innovation that is new programs, new technologies, new approaches from an agency standpoint to doing the overarching mission that it serves. So an example of that would be the Procurement Innovation Lab was instrumental in helping develop the Silicon Valley Innovation Program. Silicon Valley Innovation Program was a project that came together through our science and technology directorate working with various programs to say, how can we simplify and get technologies in quicker, invite innovative companies, people with ideas and people with even products that already exist or approaches that already exist, but not locking ourselves out of, you know, what I call bleeding edge technology or bleeding edge capabilities. So we married those two processes together to bring that innovative thinking in the mission space to innovations in procurement to simplify how we buy that stuff. But the Procurement Innovation Lab is really more focused on the contracting, the procurement process. Overarching from a, from an agency standpoint, how we bring in new programs and look at them and help them and support them is through our acquisition review board process. So we actually have a very robust acquisition review board process. Some agencies call it investment review board. But we're constantly looking at that process and innovating in that process to simplify 
simplify and streamline, but the idea is to bring a program in, help it through its planning phase, its budgeting phase, and then its implementation phase, which is probably where I probably sit in the most, is the implementation phase, how we're going to get the contractors, the resources to support the program. Do you find that a bit of a challenge? Because when I think of, for example, multiple down selects, it seems like part of the point of that is that you learn something from industry. You It helps you think about what the requirement really should be. You iterate on the requirement and the technical needs potentially, and then that kind of feeds back into the process. Do you? How do you think So, So I'll explain that a little bit differently. I understand what you're getting at. So one of the initiatives that I stood up, in fact, the pill was born out of this uh, original overarching initiative, was what we call Acquisition Innovations in Motion. And the idea behind Acquisition Innovations in Motion was to look at three things. One, how could we be more innovative in procurement. Two, how do we engage better with industry? And then three, how do we improve our business processes? How do we streamline and improve our business processes internal to DHS? So engagement with industry is a critical part of anything we're doing because who we contract with is generally it's industry, but academia does have some level of involvement. And what I found, and if you've ever heard of the Mythbusters memos that the Office of Federal Procurement Policy writes, is there's a hesitation to bring industry in early to help us plan, to help us learn from them. And so that was what my goal was with the engagement with industry portion of this. So I stood up three types of industry engagements that I actually host out of this office. The first one is called Strategic Industry Conversation. It's where we invite industry in once a year to hear from a strategic standpoint where we're trying to go with the department. What are some of the challenges we confront? What are some of the threats that are evolving that we're trying to combat? Very strategic level discussion. It's not about procurement, it's about understanding where the department's going, what our plans are, etc. The second one is called Reverse Industry Day, and that's a concept that's completely different, where I invite industry to come talk to us, we are the audience, to learn from them how they look at our solicitations, our contracts, what we could be doing better. Again, this is a very general conversation, strategic level. It is without attribution, meaning you're not going to name which project or program you might be citing as an example, but you're going to give us examples of how we can do things better. Help us understand what makes you tick industry, what makes you want to compete and do business with the, with the Department of Homeland Security. And then the Acquisition Innovation Roundtable is focused on a more specific topical area and is for a smaller group of people to come together to look at a particular problem or a particular process and say, how can we improve it? The best example of an Acquisition Innovation Roundtable I can give you is recent work we've done with our Chief Security Officer in industry to better define the security clearance process because that's a process that impacts a a lot of our solicitations, industry wanted to understand it better, security wanted to see how we can do that better, help industry help us. So those kinds of things are where we can start working the requirement because all too often we try to define the requirement out without really understanding how industry is going to perceive that requirement. So through these industry engagements, I'm giving permission, if you will, as the chief procurement officer to say, you can talk to industry. And as long as you're being inclusive, not exclusive, in other words, you're, you're allowing industry to participate to the maximum extent that they would like to participate and what's viable, that's fine. Let them look at the first draft of your requirement or let them look at a problem statement and help you think through how you might solve this as long as, again, you're treating industry fairly, giving them all an opportunity to participate. And by doing these industry engagements, we're going to develop better solicitations, more understandable requirements, and hopefully get better proposals. Down selects is more about how we're going to evaluate those proposals and saying to industry, you know, in this first phase, we're going to look at these things. And if you're good at this, we'll tell you. If you're not, we'll say you're not good at this. But, you know, in a voluntary down select, you can continue in the bidding process. We're just going to let you know kind of how we see you falling out. And that gives industry really the opportunity to self-select themselves out. But I will tell you that through the industry engagement that we do as part of our market research and planning and, and sharing in those requirements, we also help industry self-select themselves out.
because if it's not the right requirement for them or it's not something that they really understand, then they're probably not going to bid on it. But that's okay. They might still give us some ideas on how we can write that solicitation better or how we might want to consider evaluating that product or service. So it's really helpful to both sides because who knows the industry better than the industry that sells it, right? Right. And do you see a lot of non-traditionals like feeling comfortable participating in these? So it's not just the the big traditionals. No, it's They're not, not the big traditionals. That. We are finding more and more that the more we engage with industry, the more we do these acquisition innovation roundtables or these reverse industry days or even the strategic industry conversations, companies are starting to feel a little bit better about coming in and participating in the process. Whether they participate as a prime or a sub, we still benefit, right? So some of them are even giving us feedback on these documents and saying, hey, if you did this, you might be able to get some non-traditionals. And they ask questions. And along the way, they're learning. And what they're finding is, yes, the government processes can be tedious, but they're not insurmountable. And sometimes they're worth it. They're worth it, especially if it's something that's of interest to you, right? So I'm finding non-traditionals who come in and go, yeah, it's not so hard. I, I can do this, right? And then there are some that go, hmm, I'm never going to bid on a federal government contract because I don't want to be subject to these certain rules, but I'm willing to participate as a subcontractor. And that's good too, you know. Anytime that we can attract these companies out here that have good ideas, that's what we really want to do. So I wanted to move on to something that we were both at a supply chain summit earlier this week, and we heard from industry a couple times actually that Something that was pretty interesting, and I think you found it interesting as well, so I wanted to ask you about this. They said that when they think about managing their business, they actually focus on the inputs like delivery times and whether items are in stock much more than the outputs like sales and user user satisfaction. Could you just think about that a little bit? And how do you think about the uh, government in that regard? Sure. So believe it or not, I mean, that's like an inverse of the traditional model. You know, you always hear people say, oh, focus on the output and measure the output and that kind of stuff. Uh, so I was really excited to hear them say that because that's kind of what I think about. I mean, I still, you know, I work for the government, 40 years in service. Uh, I, I kind of know a lot about, you know, we got to get those metrics and get those outputs measured and report on them because they are important. But I think a lot about the inputs. I think about how are we building this solicitation or this supply chain in this case? What are the factors that go into that? And how can we improve that? Because we all know that the better that we get the inputs, you know, the faster, the more efficient, and the higher quality inputs that you put in, you're going to get a better output in the end. If I could equate it to the procurement process, the way I describe it to my staff is, the better we get that planning done, the more we partner with our program managers, our chief financial officers, our counterparts in the, in the CXO community, and industry, the better we do that, the better ultimately the solution will be. And that's the same concept that they were talking about. Get the inputs right. Make sure that you're putting the right resources to the job, that you're putting the right elements into the production line you're going to get a better output in the end. And that's really the concept. And I'm excited to hear people talk that way because I've always long believed the outputs actually take care of themselves if you get those inputs right. And that's very non-traditional thinking, by the way. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, that's the way I kind of think about it too, especially when you're dealing under uncertainty. You really want to focus on those inputs, the training, um, getting process times down. Right. And a lot of people... And getting the process right. Yeah. Right. You know, constantly looking at that process, because sometimes um, we focus so much on the process, we forget to think about how is that process impacting the end product? How is that process impacting even some of my inputs? You know, my inputs are people right? Talent, people, skills, doing things. And I think about business processes all the time. And is that working for them? Is that making them better? Or is it making them worse? Is it creating inefficiencies or really helping them along the lines to do a better job? So a lot of times people don't think about those things. And I, I kind of like that thinking. Yeah, it seems that a lot of people also say like, well, government's always focused on the inputs, this process, this process, that. But it seems that to some degree, because we're always trying to focus on the outputs, then we put in all of these processes for defining the specifications in the contract instead of trying to be more performance-based and like, it's kind of like a weird upsetting of we focus on the outputs and then we 
create this plethora of inputs instead of focusing on the inputs and let the people who know on the ground what is best and what solutions are actually right to kind of go and move towards that. Keyword, you just said the words near and dear to my heart. You heard me say that on the Procurement Innovation Lab, I'm looking for the contracting officers, those teams to bring the ideas. Not us, the leadership. Let's go to the people, I always call it the folks that bang on the keys. If you're the one working the process, if you're the one doing the work, that's who I want to hear from about the ideas because you're probably going to have the best ideas because you've lived it. And to your point about processes, a lot of our processes, especially in government, are built because one person made a mistake. And I hate to say it that way and it sounds bad, but that's the reality. Somewhere somebody did something wrong and so we're going to put another layer of bureaucracy or we're going to put a process in place to preclude that. And that's not always helpful. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is, to be fair, but it's not always helpful. Sometimes we need to keep some flexibility so that people can be innovative and do things a little bit differently. And sometimes we got to trust a little bit more that people will do the right thing if we teach them to do the right things. Yeah, so I very much appreciate how you kind of focus on the inputs, training, you, you go out and you kind of are promoting this positive culture. You're on this podcast after all. And you have these nice training and intern programs. Can you just talk a little bit about what you're doing on the workforce front? Oh, sure. So leaders know that you're not leading if you're not taking care of that workforce. Because at the end of the day, who gets the job done are the people, the the day-to-day folks. And I am passionate about our workforce and making sure that we not only bring in the right people, but that we continually inspire and motivate them to do the job and do it well. And to do that, we have to take care of them. We have to not only put them in the right jobs, but give them the training so that they can continue to develop and make sure that we're constantly focused on their career paths. Where is it that they're trying to go and what they're trying to do? So we have several programs here. Uh, One of the programs that was stood up when I was here at headquarters before, I was actually one of the heads of contracting that participated in the program, is our Acquisition Professionals Career Program. And that's basically like an intern program. Our APCP program really focuses on a three-year program where we bring folks in from different areas. They could be graduating from college, people who are making, you know, mid-career change, uh, people coming back from military service, you know, people coming in from military service. So it's a plethora of individuals. There is no one size fits all. But we bring folks in into a three-year program where they are basically in a group being trained through formal training as well as on-the-job training. So they actually get to really work and touch our procurements. They'll actually run procurements by their third year on their own. And they're brought into this program over the three years. I have acquisition career managers and program managers who monitor their progress, make sure they get the right rotational assignments across the department because they actually get assigned to the different contracting offices within the department or program offices within the department. And at the end of that three years, we hire them if they're successful of course Uh, if they're successful we hire them it's a great program we probably have about a 75 to 80 percent retention rate on that program meaning folks that graduate from the program stay with the department and the goal there was really to develop our acquisition professionals. There are 10 career fields in that program. We continue to add career fields. Uh, We started out with the contracting side, but we've added program managers, logisticians, cost estimators, test and evaluation managers, and so on. So all those professions that impact the overall acquisition. A second program that we're getting ready to kick off that I'm really excited about is our summer hire intern program. So this is where we're going to reach into the colleges for folks who are in that last year of school and bring them in for a semester to work for us so that they can get a flavor and see if they want to be in this profession, this procurement, and we're starting with procurement, by the way, with the procurement profession, and if they're interested in, then we can bring them back a second semester. They're going to earn a salary while they're working because they're actually working, and then at the end of that, we can roll them into our acquisition professionals career program. So it's another pipeline that we're creating to bring people into the profession. Then in addition to that, I run a bunch of different events. Uh, I have a leadership interview day where I actually invite folks who are already working in the government, across government in different areas to come in and meet with my leadership team and learn a little bit more 
about what we do to see if they have an interest in joining the department and coming to work in our profession. So I'm always trying to find the best and the brightest, but I'm always very conscientious of our folks. I run a mentoring program for our profession that stretches across the department, so it reaches out to all of our folks that are even out there in the field working in the procurement profession so they can learn from one another and they can be mentored by folks in their career field and also to help folks at headquarters be mentored by folks out in the field. We also have executive development program that we run to help people prepare for executive careers in the acquisition profession. So the executive development program, it's a one-year program. Folks come in, they get to work on a special project, they're part of a team, they get to work on a special project, but they also get formal training on those key executive skills that you need to have, how to communicate, how to lead people, uh, how to build coalitions. So, you know, I run a bunch of programs and I'm constantly thinking of what next, right? Um, because I really believe that you got to keep your workforce engaged. You have to give them the opportunity to grow and develop. And then you got to give them the wings to go out there and do the job, empower them. People like that word. I like say, you know, give them the wings to fly out there and get some stuff done. And along the way, we're going to get some really great, talented people. And sometimes we lose some people and sometimes they come back because they find out it's a great place to be here with us. That's great. Yeah, well, we have uh, one of the acquisition professionals program people here with us today. So, <laughs> so well, and that's an example of how I lead. I am very passionate about leading our workforce. And one of the things I try to do is create shadowing opportunities. So they have an opportunity to see what it means to be an executive in government, to be a line of business executive, to experience different things, things that they might not normally see in their day-to-day -day lives, you know, working at their desk. And this is an opportunity for them to learn. So that I'm very positive about that and I encourage my leadership teams to do that across the department. Yeah, it's good to hear that because sometimes it feels like you take a new person, they're not completely familiar, and then you just like kind of throw them into a, a program office as some functional, and then it's hard for them to kind of figure out how to use that person. And I'm all, I've always been a big kind of advocate for the kind of an apprenticeship model, but like also focusing on how you develop our people rather than everything's on the program. What does the program look like? How big is it? What does it look like? And then the people almost feel like they can't affect that. Exactly. And, and I think it is important to focus on people's career goals and objectives and to observe people. I've, you know, like I said, I've been in government for 40 years. And one of the things that I've, I've seen is I've sometimes gone into a job and found people who really weren't in the right jobs. They were talented, they were capable, but maybe that wasn't the right job for them. And I think that's part of leadership is helping people find the right path for themselves and helping them get there. Because at the end of the day, I want people to be happy. I want them to enjoy their work. As I always say, I love what I do and I love the people I do it with. And that's what I want people to have. And sometimes you can land in the wrong job and somebody should help you understand that and see that. That's why mentoring is extremely important. Uh, I mentor quite a few people and I encourage leaders to always be out there mentoring folks um, because we learn from one another. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, uh, in the Department of Defense, we've seen these cycles where authority would be kind of at the top at the OSD, the Office of Secretary of Defense level, and then it might be delegated down to the services. Right now, we're kind of in a period of delegation, and it might be going back the other way pretty soon. We'll see. But has this trend kind of been happening at in DHS where between headquarters and the components, is there a delegation like cycle, or how has that been working? So I think... We're a little bit unique in that, if you'll recall, the way DHS was stood up, um, we have these components that each have kind of slightly different missions, and we come together to deliver the overarching Homeland Security mission. So it's a little harder to bifurcate, if you will, that delegation. What Coast Guard does is what Coast Guard does, but they work in partnership I would say, more so with headquarters to achieve that mission. So it's not a delegated, you know, you can do this, you can't do that type of thing. Um, there's always that hierarchy and we port to one another and we share information. But I think at DHS what I find is that we share information more so than that hierarchical view. And I think that's what gives us sometimes a little bit greater flexibility to do some of the things that we have to do. That's true for ICBP, USCIS, and all the other organizations that we have across the department because they really do have some unique missions and it's bringing us together to deliver that overarching homeland security mission while letting them do their job. 
TSA, screening at airports, you know, CBP, watching the border, Federal Protective Service, guarding our federal uh, government facilities. So I don't think you deal with that as much here, you don't, it, or at least you don't feel it as much, let me say it that way. Soraya Correa, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Well, thank you for the opportunity, and it's always a pleasure. And if any of your folks out there are interested in acquisition career fields, tell them to come see me. <laughs> Will do. <laughs> Take care. Thank you very thanks. much. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time. <laughs>